6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Gospels. Gospel of Luke, again, he was a doctor. It's the most complete narrative. There are over 20 miracles, six of which are unique to Luke's Gospel. There are 23 parables in Luke, 18 of them unique to Luke. So Luke is broader in scope, in a sense, than the others, in a, in a sense of speaking. He is an authenticated historian and writer. Sir William Ramsey, a skeptic, set out to discredit Luke. And he did his research and was astonished to discover that Luke had done his homework. And the details of Luke prove out to be confirmable in history. And so he, uh, Luke emerges very much vindicated, and uh, Ramsey becomes a believer. He's a Gentile, he's a physician, and probably a slave, as was common in those days. And Luke is, in a sense, in two volumes. Volume 1 is the Gospel, Luke 1, I'll call it. And Luke 2 is what we call the Book of Acts. He apparently got sponsored by a very high official who's called here Theophilus. That could be a title, it might be his name. He obviously is the one that has made it possible for Luke to accompany Paul and to document it all. There are scholars that believe, and there's support for this view, that the documents of Luke are the required documents to Caesar in an appeal. When someone appealed to Caesar, as Paul did, the law required that all the history precede him to Rome of all the background. And that was an expensive thing to do in those days, and Luke's doing it. If you study Luke carefully from that point of view, it seems to be supportive. You'll notice in Luke, there's always an emphasis when there's an uprising that was the Jews that stirred up the uprising. You'll also notice then in Luke, the centurions are always good guys. If you profile centurions as they show up in Luke, uh, they, they are a great bunch of guys. So he's the beloved physician. There is more mention of healing uh, in Luke than in Matthew and Mark put together. There are more technical terms in Luke than in the writings of Hippocrates, the famous Greek physician. More medical terms. Hippocrates, the father, who's known as the father of medicine, included, interestingly enough, our obstetrical details of the nativity. He also probably was along with Paul to treat Paul's eye problem. Paul apparently had an ophthalmic malady of some kind. That may be uh, part of Luke's support and service to Paul. So, you know, it's interesting. I love what um, Harry Einstein said of, uh, of Luke. He says, the religion of Israel could produce only a Pharisee. The power of Rome could only produce a Caesar. The philosophy of Greece could only produce an Alexander, who in a sense was an infinite heart. It was to this Greek mind that Luke wrote, he presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man, the universal man, and the very person the Greeks were looking for. I think that's provocative. Very interesting. Very interesting. 
It's astonishing to me to see how many people publishing books on the, in the public marketplace have no concept of who Jesus Christ is. People who present themselves as experts in the Bible or whatever have no grasp of who he is. Just a question of doing your homework. Luke, of course, uh, focuses on the incarnation. There are two annunciations. There are two elect mothers, and there's two anticipated births. Uh, he, Luke also focuses on the Galilean ministries, the teachings, the miracles, and the twelve being sent. He also focuses on the journey towards Jerusalem. And he, uh, he talks about the heir being executed, presented riding a donkey, Passover, Gethsemane, and Golgotha, and so forth. He focuses on the seven crises of Christ. His birth, of course, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. This is the analysis by G. Campbell Morgan. And I think it's, it's very valid. Seven, seven major milestones in the ministry of Christ. The Gospel of John. He has a prologue, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John talks about the public ministry to the Jews, the signs, the declarations, and the conflicts. Then he talks about his private ministry to his own people, to his own disciples. As John would. He, John was on the inside, wasn't he? The presages, the anticipations, the departure, the coming of the Spirit. And then he focuses on the tragedy and the triumph, the apprehension, the prosecution, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. It's interesting to realize that virtually more than a half of the book is on the last week of Christ's ministry. John gives us a lot of that detail. There are eight miracles that make up the Gospel of John. Turning the water into wine is the first one. What a strange one. And you really won't understand that unless you understand what water was used. It wasn't just some handy water that happened to be in the household where this wedding was taking place. It was the water of purification. Cana's up in the north. What they had for ritual purposes down in Jerusalem, they used the ashes of the red heifer to create water of purification. And that was then in the presence of the priests that were in the various Levitical cities and wherever. And so it was the water of purification that were in these jars that they used. It also was not public. The only people who knew what was going on were the disciples. But he was demonstrating to the disciples by that miracle, turning that water into wine, that he was the Lord of the Torah. That would be very significant to a Jewish mind. It wasn't just water and wine, it was that water that he would presume to use. He also healed the nobleman's son, the curing of the Bethesda uh, paralytic. He fed the 5,000, then he walked on the water, gave sight to the blind man, the raising of Lazarus, and the draft of the fishes. These are the main... Each one of these give rise to an I am statement. I'll come to this. One of the key verses in the Gospel of John, now it's obviously John has the most famous verse of all in chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed Him should not perish, but everlasting life. We are probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible that comes out of John. But there's another verse that I think is also a very key verse to understand, and that's John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become what? The sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. When we were in Genesis chapter 6, we made a big point of the fact that the Benai HaElohim phrase in the Old Testament always refers to a direct creation of God. And in the Old Testament, it's generally, it's used, except in one place, it's used of angels. 
The other one, that the only other thing that's a direct creation of God is Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God. You and I are not. We're sons of Adam. There's a difference. And unless we're born again. See, to them who received Jesus Christ, to them gave he the power to become a direct creation of God, a son of God. But that's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But that term is used very precisely that way. See, you and I are not a sons of God unless we're regenerated. Until then, we're a son of Adam. Adam was a son of God, but he blew it. You and I are sons of Adam unless we receive Jesus Christ, in which there's a second experience. And that's what Jesus is going to deal with when he meets with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Very key concept here. How many did receive him? See, that's introduced in John. He goes on then to talk about eight, uh, eight people that receive him. Peter, Nathaniel, and those guys will occur before the end of that chapter. Nicodemus emerges as a key player in chapter 3. The woman uh, at the well in chapter 4, Sychar 1. The man born blind in chapter 9. Mary and Martha at Bethany in chapter 11. The 11 apostles are dealt with in 13 and 14. Mary Magdalene in chapter 20. And then Peter in chapter 21. So we find this, this progression of the eight that did, did in various ways, under various circumstances, each with its own lessons to be learned as you investigate it, uh, did receive him. Now, in retrospect, see, Matthew presents the promised one. He says the promised one is here. See his credentials. Matthew emphasizes his credentials, his genealogy legally and, and all of that. Mark says this is how he worked. See his power. Mark emphasizes the power of Jesus Christ. Luke, this is what he was like. See his nature, his humanity, how he felt, he wept, and so forth. John, this is who he really was. See his godship. These are the, the each one has its, its you're seeing Jesus Christ in quadraphonic, if you will. Four different views, four different emphasis. Going through, trying to pick a few highlights each one is a tough thing because there's so many precious things, but I, I really have to include John chapter 8. Because they're really at it. There's a very, very nasty exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus Christ. And they call him a bastard. That's not the way it's translated in the King James. But we are not sons of fornication. See, they're alluding to the fact that Mary was, that he was illegitimate, the illusion. And so he's, <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit about your background. And he goes on. There's an incredible confrontation. But he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That shakes him up. Then said the Jews unto him, when, the word, when John used the word Jews, he's alluding to the leadership of the Jews. Not Jews in general, but he's speaking to the leadership of speaking. And that's been a subject of misunderstanding through the centuries. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? <laughs> Jesus said to them, I love this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, as a Gentile, we don't pick up on that because we don't realize what he's saying. They understood what he was saying. He claimed to be the voice in the burning bush in Exodus 4. See, whenever we have a chance of missing something, the Pharisees come to our rescue. Next verse, they took up stones to cast at him. Why? Because they understood he was claiming to be God. He claimed to be the voice of the burning bush. They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, and going through the midst of them, and so passed by. What does that mean? I have no idea. Somehow he just slipped through. And I think that's interesting. When Moses asked God, 
Who shall I say? You know, what, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. The ichyach asher ichyach phrase. Jesus lays claim to that. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. Anyone comes in by me is a thief and a robber. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Now, it's interesting that there are a series of miracles. Each miracle gives rise to a discourse. Each discourse includes an I am statement. And you begin to realize that John's gospel is very, very intricately organized. And it's worth, uh, worth understanding that. The tabernacle furniture. When we went through that back in, in uh, Exodus, each one refers to Jesus Christ. The, the brazen altar, the brazen laver, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the golden altar, that is, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat. They each speak of an aspect of Jesus Christ's ministry, the atonement, the brazen altar, the regeneration at the laver, the living bread, the table of showbread, the light of the world from the lampstand or the menorah that's there, the uh, altar of incense, the intercession, the, uh, the, the, the incense is the prayers of the saints. The Ark of the Covenant, the covenant access. Notice that the mercy seat is a separate element of furniture, even though we look at it as the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a separate piece. It's made differently. The Ark is made out of wood covered with gold. The mercy seat is solid, hammered gold. And that speaks of the propitiation. And as you know from some of our materials, there is a possibility that the mercy seat will be the very throne from which Christ rules in the millennium. Okay, let's talk a little about the chronology. There's a lot of confusion. Tiberius was appointed in 14 A.D., that's a matter of fact, because Augustus died on August 19th of 14 A.D. We know that the ministry started in the 15th year of Tiberius. Now be careful with that. That's year 14. It's during the following year. In other words, the 15th year, it's not A.D. 15 yet. It's A.D. 14 plus some months. You, you follow me? So it's in the 15th year. You know, I had fun with... Uh, uh, one of my, our beloved staff members who's such a loyal, he's always travels with me, and we were at the Studio of the Mind of America conference, big 3,000 thing, and he was many of the book tables. It happened to be his birthday, 50th birthday. So I said to the whole audience, I want you, if you get a chance, uh, we'll wish, wish Gordon a, a birthday. He's entering his sixth decade. Gee, he must be 60. He doesn't. They, they go up to him, but, gee, you don't look 60. I'm not 60. I'm 50. <laughs> So I was playing with it that way. But see, if I'm in my 71st year, I'm 70 years old plus. So understand that within the 15th year of Tiberius means it's A.D. 14. So if it's the 14th year and he came to power in the 14th year, that means the ministry began in 28 A.D., 14 plus 14. You with me? Not 29, 28. And that means the fourth Passover, which is when he was crucified, thus becomes April 6th of 32 A.D. And this is Sir Robert Anderson's dating. I mention this up here because this is, this is what we happen to believe. It doesn't mean we're right, but I want you to know the basis we're using. There are many good scholars that have different approaches to the chronology that are defendable. But many of them I tend to reject because many of them try to justify a Friday crucifixion. And from three passages in the Scripture, it's clear to me that it could not possibly have been on a Friday. And that causes me to dismiss some of these other reckonings. This one is in the Scripture, easily defended, and it's also the one that Sir Robert Anderson has excellent background on. So whether you agree or not, at least you know where we're coming from on our chronology, and you'll see why I want to get into this. Let's go to autumn of 28 A.D. Begins at Nazareth, where he grew up, as you realize. And uh, then we, he goes down to Bethabara, for where he gets baptized in the Jordan, where John the Baptist is baptizing. 
From there he goes up to the Mount of Temptation, then back to, uh, back up to Salem, which is, uh, uh, up, and then from there up to Cana. And that's where, that was Nathaniel's hometown. And that's where he gets his first disciples, John, Peter, and Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. And this is all in John, chapter, this is all in the first chapter of John, if you will. That brings us to the spring of 29 AD, the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. That's again up in the Al-Gali area. Then he moves to Capernaum, the village of Nahum, actually. He sets himself up there as a base of operations in the Galilee ministry. He will go down to Jerusalem and uh, purge the temple, and that was one of several, incidentally. And that's also where he has his visit to, to uh, Nicodemus and so forth down there. He tarries for a while, gets baptized then, and uh, then uh, we have John the Baptist's last testimony in John chapter 3, very early in the things. And that brings us to the winter of 29 AD, from which we go up to Sychar, the woman at the well occurs in, in uh, John 4, then up to uh, uh, Cana, where uh, Jesus heals the son of the uh, royal official there. And back down in Jerusalem, he, there's a healing at the pool of Bethesda. Brings us to the spring of 30 A.D. in Jerusalem. That's where John the Baptist about this time is imprisoned. And uh, this also begins his public ministry in Galilee. He goes up to Nazareth, makes his formal announcement at the synagogue there, quoting from Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. And uh, they try to throw him off a cliff, but don't succeed, obviously. And uh, so he uses the, his mandate. He declares it from Isaiah in Matthew 4 and also recorded in Luke 4. He's driven out, and uh, th they try to throw him off a cliff. He heads over to Capernaum, calls four disciples in, in Matthew 4. We have Peter's draft of fish there, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the, the leper, and so forth. That brings us to the summer of 30 A.D. at Capernaum, where he heals a paralytic. And there we hear Matthew's call to service, if you will. That where, remember, they, go, they pick the ears of corn on the Sabbath. We have that whole confrontation in Luke chapter 6. The man with a withered hand in Luke chapter 6. And his fame, of course, starts to spread throughout the Galilee region. And that's also about the time we believe it was the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's also in Luke 6, but also detailed for you in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, in which Jesus reinterprets, in effect, the Ten Commandments and others, putting them to a much higher level, uh, one of the heart, not just one of actions. Then we have the, the healing of the centurion servant and so forth. Around, we have, around Nain, we have the widow's son raised there. We have John's question. John the Baptist is in prison. He sends an inquiry team to ask some questions. You may recall he dines at Simon's house and then returns home. That brings us to the autumn of 30 A.D. And, and we're in Capernaum as his headquarters. The blind and dumb man are healed. And that's where they accuse him of doing this by Beelzebub. From that point on, he speaks only in parables. We have the seven kingdom parables I alluded to. And uh, if you look at the Galilee area, He's on his way from Capernaum across the sea to Gadara, which is on the eastern shore. Uh, there's a storm en route there that uh, is prominent, of course, in Matthew 4. That's where the demoniac is healed. Very, very important passage because we learn a great deal about the spirit world from that encounter. So he uh, heads back, to, uh, and we're not winter of 30 AD in Capernaum. Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. Both of these strange events occur there, and the Holy Spirit links them together. Because Jairus' daughter, who was raised from the dead, is 12 years old. The woman with the issue of blood has had that issue for 12 years. 
Are they connected? Maybe not directly in one sense, but clearly in the mind of the Holy Spirit. As we look at those two, we see a very interesting thing. Jesus is on the way to heal a Jewish daughter when the woman by faith is healed. And it's a, it can be viewed as a model of both Israel and the church in some interesting ways. So I'll let you get into that and see what you see there. There's two blind men healed, men dumb and possessed. All this is going on up there at Nazareth. Then people take offense in Mark 6. The apostles are sent out in pairs in, in, it's in Matthew 10 and, and uh, Mark 6. It's about this time that John the Baptist is executed. And that's a major milestone. Jesus comments on that and, and, some, and they then return to Capernaum. That brings you to the spring of 31 AD at Capernaum. We have a return of the 12 that were sent out. And he then retires to Bethsaida. Now they've just, by the way, discovered Bethsaida. It's surprising because it's very much inland. See, the, sea of, the shore was much higher in those days. So Bethsaida, we know it's on the shore, but it was on the shore in their days. It's actually quite a ways from the shore today, but it is being excavated. It's relatively new. It's kind of interesting to, to get into all of that. This is where he feeds the 5,000 and returns to Capernaum. Jesus walks on water in this area on the way back to Capernaum. We, here we have the sermon of the bread of life and all of that. We're eating with unwashed hands, and he comments on that in, Matthew, in Mark 7, I should say. Summer of 31 AD. He actually takes a summer cottage at Tyre. Many people don't realize that. And uh, that's all in, in Mark 7. Then he, uh, he helps the Canaanite woman. Then he's in Gentile country again at Decapolis. And uh, this is where deaf and dumb men are healed, feeding a 4,000 there. Then he ends to Magdala, and, which is uh, a town on the west shore of, of the Sea of Galilee, up near the, north, the northwest corner. That, that's an area where there's two tall mountains and a valley between that creates a Venturi effect and the source of many of these very violent storms on this relatively small uh, lake. We, we would call it a lake. But here's where the Pharisees demand a sign. They're always demanding signs. Back at Bethsaida, we have the leaven of the Pharisees and the inquiries of Herod and so forth. But in autumn 31 AD, we have uh, a journey northwards to Caesarea Philippi. And we have the famous de declaration in Matthew 16. And uh, where he talks about, on this, uh, on this I'll build my church. The transfiguration, many scholars have different estimates of what, which was the mount the transfiguration took place on. It's my suspicion, can't prove it, but suspicion that it was probably Mount Hermon. That's the highest mountain in the area. But in any case, uh, it's right there by Caesarea Philippi in a sense. It's just a little further north. But uh, there's many, many other scholars have slightly different conjectures on that. There's where a possessed boy is encountered and so forth. Back in Capernaum, we have the tribute many question, the whole idea of finding the coin and the fish and so forth. Many people misunderstand that parable, by the way. Or it's not a parable, it's an incident. Um, that was a tax they were not required to pay. They paid it anyway. They asked for a tax, and Jesus says, is it, is it for us or for strangers? For strangers, well, we're not strangers. But go pay it anyway. Find a coin. And, and it's an interesting lesson about that. But, and also, that's the contest of who is the greatest and so forth. The, that all occurs there, up there. Then we head down to Jerusalem. We're, getting, we're heading for the, get towards the climax now. He goes down there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, in, uh, which is in John 7. Jesus is the living water was his point there as they were uh, celebrating that. That's where the woman was taken in adultery. He deals with that. That's where he also announced that he's the light of the world in John chapter. John 7 and 8 is rich material. Um, then he turns back up north to the Galilee. In the winter of 31 AD now, the Samaritans uh, reject him. And uh, he goes down to Perea, which is uh, on the east bank, as we might call it. 
And that's where you encounter the, the issue of the Good Samaritan, the unrighteous steward, the rich man and Lazarus, all these parables. The 70 are now sent out. Again, this is Luke, and it's from the Perean ministry there. We, over then we pop back to Jerusalem. He heals the man born blind, the Good Shepherd discourse, which incidentally, he, in, in which he alludes to Hanukkah, which our Jewish friends celebrate at the time that many of us are celebrating Christmas. The Hanukkah is an important feast. Like all the, all the Jewish feasts are important to understand. Hanukkah is the key to understanding Daniel 9. We've touched on that already. He tarries at Bethabara. That brings us to the spring of 32 AD. We're getting near the climax now. He heads from Bethabara to Bethany. And uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead. They have a plot to kill Jesus. He moves to the village of Ephraim, which is up north a little bit. And then en route to Perea, he encounters ten lepers. Uh, he heals all ten, but only one comes back to thank him. You remember that interesting thing in Luke 17? And then we have the parable of the persistent widow. We have the Pharisees and the publican, the rich ruler thing in Luke 18. And then the vineyard workers and the request of the mother of the sons of Je the, Like a Jewish mother, she wants her sons to be at his right and left hand. He, he tries, he straightens her out on that. But then he's at, Jer then he goes from prayer to Jericho. This is important. There he meets, he is blind Bartimus. Uh, and then he has uh, Zacchaeus in the tree, the young guy, and the parable of the ten talents, etc. Now, an incident occurs here I want to just highlight. From Jericho, the, the six days before Passover, he goes from Jericho to Bethany. That's more than a Sabbath day's journey. So six days before Passover could not have been a, a Shabbat, which means that Passover that year could not be on a Friday. It's one of three reasons, but I just pointed that out to you. This is one of the reasons that we we hold with those scholars who believe it was either Wednesday or Thursday. We think Wednesday for a number of reasons, but it's, it, clearly it was not Friday. That's a church tradition by, born of some misunderstandings. So that's a quick snapshot. We're, we'll leave the final week for the next session to get into detail. The final week we call the agony of love. Six hours in eternity. In those six hours are far more that happen than could happen in six hours, but we'll deal with that in our next session. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.